0: listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense. Discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Alrighty, and we are live. Okay. With a guest episode today. So exciting. Uh, So first off, welcome to the Maniculum Podcast, where Mac and I go through weird medieval texts, contextualize them for you guys, and then explain how to adapt those ideas into D&D and storytelling, video games, whatever you want to do with them. And this week, we're going to go a little off book, literally, in the sense of we are not covering a text, but back into the books in the sense that we will be talking about medieval marginalia. And we are joined today with Lucas. I met Lucas at the Scarborough Renaissance Fair in Texas and saw some of the beautiful marginalia that he did and immediately got some for myself. You should all definitely check out his work. It's fantastic. But anyway, would you like to introduce yourself, Lucas? And then we'll jump into today.
1: Hi, I am Lucas Tucker. I am a scribe and Illuminator, and Chemist, and yeah, technically I'm also a teacher, but we'll talk about that later. But yeah, I met Zoe, and we kind of hit it off and started talking about uh, manuscript work, as well as marginalia, and uh, a little bit about tabletop gaming and physical RPGs, mostly. I have a question. Which fair did you say you met at? Scarborough. So it's the Scarborough Renaissance Festival Festival. Just south of Dallas in
2: Waxahachie, Texas. So you're saying that you were going to Scarborough Fair? <laughs> no, we were already yes. there. Was there parsley, sage, rosemary, and or thyme?
1: I usually keep in the refrigerator in the back so that it doesn't go bad because it was really hot this year.
0: Oh, it was nasty. It was fair. so hot outside. Fair. <laughs> but I did finally. Yeah, fair.
1: Literally fair.
0: I did finally purchase my first sword. I'm very excited about it. It's a hand and a nice. half bastard long sword. Very cool.
2: I'm genuinely surprised you didn't already have one.
0: I had a poniard. I didn't have an actual sword aside from, you know, my fencing gear. So, you know, I finally. That makes sense. That makes sense. Finally, finally did it. All right. So, before we begin, just to cover all of our bases, if you would like to join us in this weird medieval wacky world, we do have a Patreon if you'd like to support us. And we have a shout out to do this week to Caroline. Thank you, Caroline, for joining us as an anti-purveyance peasant. We appreciate you greatly. So if you'd like to join us on our Patreon, help support the show, feel free. We also have our social media on Discord. So come join us on the Discord. That's tons of fun. We also have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So you can follow us on all of those at Maniculum and thereabouts. And you can find Lucas's work in a bunch of different places as well, but
1: mostly on the website, Literally Scribble Workshop everywhere. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn. I think it's under my name instead of Scribble Workshop. ScribbleWorkshop.com. But if you just search for Scribble Workshop on the internet, the first thing that comes up is actually Etsy. Don't go there. Go to my website instead. It's better.
0: There we go. So a while ago, I asked in the Discord, this is one of the cool parts of the Discord, I asked you guys what you would want to ask a medieval scribe. And now we have a medieval scribe with us, so to speak. So we're going to go through a bunch of the questions that you guys had. And for those of you who are more familiar with the tabletop side of this show and less familiar with the medieval history academic side of this show, we will lay the groundwork for what actually a medieval scribe is and what they do. So who is a medieval scribe and what do you do both, I guess, in and out of the medieval sphere? And what brought
1: you to open a scribal workshop in the first place? So in the medieval sphere, what I do is I recreate historic illuminated manuscripts up to and including entire books using all of the tools and materials that were present for the time. So I do my utmost not to use any modern aids or systems to do that, Um, although I do sometimes design in Photoshop before I put things on paper. And when I say paper, I mean parchment. So, but I recreate manuscripts, single pages, and then whole books. I'm also kind of, in real life, I got my undergraduate degree in chemistry, Worked as a professional chemist for eight years, and then started Scribal Workshop and switched to teaching high school chemistry full-time. In all of this, I developed kind of my love and desires for medieval illuminated manuscripts, as well as the Scribal work itself, and kind of grew that alongside the chemistry. So I end up making all of my inks, all of my paints, using historic recipes and historic materials— I've started doing a lot of my own pigment manufacture as well. The problem is some of the manufactured pigments that you can make, although beautiful, are not as stable or as lightfast, and so I tend to err on the mineral side of the pigment realm. So full-time, I teach high school chemistry, but then I also run this company and business and work as a scribe. So what brought me to opening it was I started doing calligraphy when I was 10, continued doing that, made my first batch of Medieval Recipe ink when I was about 17, collected oak galls from the trees in my front yard, and the first batch was terrible. as brown and horrific looking, and I burned it, and so I made a second batch. Um, it was much better. And then when I was in undergrad, I took a Shakespeare class with my then fiance, now wife, and we took this class together, and I used as an excuse of this class, there was a final project option. And I decided I was going to make Patents of Nobility for Henry V when he was dubbed Duke of Hereford before he became king. Because he is the one and only Duke of Hereford that ever existed, and therefore no one can prove my Patents of Nobility wrong. Ingenious. <clears throat> and so, right? Right? I, I felt so smart. So I saved up, I bought this skin of parchment and it was my first actual skin of parchment. I bought the cheapest one I could find from a company in New York that manufactures parchment still, and I, you know, basically skipped eating for a month, actually. My then-fiancé fed me so that I could use all of my grocery budget to purchase parchment that month. So I did that. I created that project, and then I did work on, I did some work on papyrus for my ancient Greek professor. I did so that's when I really, really went from like kind of using, like using quills and making my own ink and kind of working on parchment to like really shifted over to full kind of medieval and historic. So if I was doing ancient work, I was working on papyrus with a reed. If I was doing medieval work, I was working with a quill with iron gall ink on parchment. And so that's when that shift really happened when I was about 22. Uh, I'd done some illumination before that and some knot work and some things like that. And then... We moved to Texas from Virginia. This whole thing happened. And my, I think it was my mom actually was like, well, you like going to Renaissance festivals. Why don't you apply? So I build this overly elaborate submission actually with manuscripts and details of how they're made. And I made a handbound, basically an entirely handbound book that I submitted as my submission to them. And they were like, yeah, would you like to be a guest artist for eight weekends? And I said, okay, sure. And we've been there ever since. So we just finished our 10th season, which because of COVID is now also our 10 years doing this instead oh my gosh. of 11, instead of what would have been a 10 years and 11 seasons, uh, we're now at 10 years 10 and 10 seasons. seasons. And so that's when that started, switched to teaching chemistry full time. Um, and we're kind of staring me doing scribal Workshop full time right in the face right now.
0: Wow, very cool. So it's like the other side of Breaking Bad.
1: It is. <laughs> If ink and quills uh, was only as, uh, as lucrative profitable. as that, right? So then I would be much better off, frankly. But it's a whole lot more legal than yes. uh, amphetamines.
2: So
0: Yes, you're a couple centuries too far.
2: Uh, probably more deadly than amphetamine. I assume the pigments and in inks are also less likely to explode.
1: Uh, depends on which ones, but generally, yes. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's a little better than, than doing the phosphorus reduction, but you can also – there's a couple of mercury distillations and then regeneration of vermilion from the mercury
2: vapor that can get a little dicey.
0: Yeah, you gotta be got to be real careful with that. Wow.
2: Yeah. I feel like no, we should kidding. come back to that one. I want to know about the dicey
0: <laughs> So for those of you who are listening and sort of wondering what the hell are they talking about – Creating entire manuscripts and entire parchments from scratch is essentially from scratch is A very, very long involved process. So, when he's creating his own inks, we're talking about taking the chemical elements, understanding how those work, and bringing them together in the medieval fashion. There would, it would be, and I'm guessing here, but correct me if I'm wrong, it would be much easier to create modern ink, even if you wanted to create the ink yourself, than it would be to do it the medieval way.
1: So, I also make modern ink. For fountain pens in particular, and so the the modern fountain pen ink, making a batch of ink, I can make a batch in, it takes me about an hour now that I have the formulas figured out. Because I use a lot of kind of ready-to-suspend raw materials, I know my formulas, I have everything figured out, and I throw those together. Medieval ink, so if I'm making the medieval black, which is iron gall ink, I start by cracking open a bunch of oak galls, which are a growth that forms on the oak tree. As a byproduct of parasitic wasps laying their eggs in the oak tree, oak tree produces galls around that, it protects the oak tree, it also kind of protects the wasp, and what happens is those galls produce a very high content of tannic and gallic acid. I then take those and crack them all open in a giant mortar and pestle and throw them in a jar, dump boiling water over them, let it cool down, add dust from the top of my fridge, put a cloth cover over it, and leave it for a month. Because... Mold helps to convert the tannic acid to gallic acid, which increases the quality of the black. So gallic acid produces a deep, rich blue-black. Tannins actually produce kind of a brownish-black color.
0: Well, that's what makes the red wine red, is it has tannins as opposed to white wine.
1: It's actually the polyphenol dyes that actually make it red it's the tannins that make it bitter on your tongue there's so few tannins in it and the tannins actually most of the tannins in the grape in the wine actually comes out of the barrel than coming out of yeah so there's actually some in the grape skin as well but most of it actually comes out of the oak barrel
0: oh okay interesting anyway go on
1: anyway so we take these tannins we leave them to rot and mold and i mean it gets nasty In a month. And so there's this glorp left in this jar that's kind of rotted and kind of festery. If I let it go long enough, you kind of open it It has kind of a musty, really earthy kind of slightly astringent, but mostly just really earthy and musty and kind of smells like if you re dried out the underside of a house that's gone kind of mildewy. Anyway, and so then I take that and boil it. And so kill everything off, boil it, and then do like three to five extractions off of that. Pull all the water off, filter it cook it down until it's lower, and then add my vinegar, my wine, and the iron salt. So the key to iron gall ink is the iron. So you take the gallic acid, gallotanic acid solution, and you add iron salt to it. Typically and historically, it's ferrous sulfate, which is called copperas in period. Uh, if you actually go look at old recipes, it'll show up, and there's like a hundred different spellings of it, right? Oh, of course. Because it's more fun that way. <laughs> but so, and then you add that, and as soon as you add the iron it turns jet black and just completely changes in front of you. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole process. And then add a little bit of gum arabic to thicken things back up so that it will flow correctly and behave correctly. So this whole process is about an hour on the front end, a month of rotting, and then another four to eight hours on the back end, and then bottling. Whereas with modern materials, you're talking about an hour or two.
0: Makes sense. I feel like that explains all of the leech book recipes that we've read, Mac. Where we're looking at this and we're thinking, okay, how would this actually work? It's sitting in the sun for three days. What we didn't factor in was the mold process.
2: Rotting's important.
0: Fermenting, get all the good juices going.
2: Maybe they managed to grow penicillin and didn't realize it. (laughs) It's possible. Uh, Actually, it was known. Galen.
1: So Galen actually has writings where he, uh, the the prescription for a festering wound was to, he would used to carry around balls of moldy bread and pack them into wounds as treatment for a festering wound. Oh, interesting. There we go. Yep. So penicillin as a discovery, I would argue is the, the, it was an accident is apocryphal because they totally knew that mold helped deal (laughs) with stuff.
0: I, you know, I 100% buy that genuinely. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Speaking of tangents.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, always, always with our tangents. All right. So, Mac, did you have any other things that you wanted to ask before we jump into our Ask a Medieval Scribe question list from our listeners?
2: What all colors of ink do you make? So ink that I make,
1: I make an iron gall, I make a Brazil wood. So these are the two that have the best historicity, right? So they have the best documentation, the best recipes, the best everything. There's also, I make a buckthorn ink, which is kind of a golden greenish yellow, and I will tell you that there is no distinct recipes for it as an ink, but there are recipes for creating the lake pigment from it. However, hold on, I have one right here in front of me. Um, um, nobody else can see it, but we can. you can. This color right here, you see that oh, color right nice. there? Yeah. Yes. P.S. This is an antiphonal that I bought off of eBay for $40 because it was super <laughs> cheap. I also have a couple of Book of Hours pages that I paid like $15 for.
0: Hey, we will not hold those against you. Anyway, I'm like, I'm really
1: against like cutting up whole books. However, $15. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, okay. Anyway, so that color (laughs) really comes from buckthorn berries historically. And so I make that as an ink. And I will tell you, like, even just looking at this antiviral, like looking at the texture of that, looking at it, it's gum Arabic. And it's buckthorn, which is basically what's in my recipes. There's more to it than that. There's some, you have to have some calcium ions in there to pull the color out. And then you also need alum. And so that's one that I make. I also make a cochineal based ink now. I used to do matter because matter lake is a color. It just does not behave well as an ink. Works great as a pigment. Makes a beautiful kind of rose purpley color, but it's, it's terrible as an ink. It's just not stable in solution long term, and it tends to cake up, and you have to shake it really hard. So I switched to a cochineal for the purple that we sell. The cochineal is, although not technically the correct bug, because it is a new world bug, it produces the same carminic acid compound that the kermes insect, which is almost extinct now, that was harvested very wildly throughout the medieval and renaissance era for both dyeing as well as for ink production and pigment production and things like that. So it's my New world substitute for, right, it's close enough, but it's made with this basically the same recipes that would be used typically again, it would have been a lake pigment and would have been ground up and made as a pigment instead of actually stored as an ink long term. But people like their inks already made and don't like to have to grind up their paint before they write things.
0: But if you are interested in either purchasing the inks yourself or making them yourself, he has a fantastic little Make the Ink Yourself kit, uh, yes. which I bought one of these actually and haven't gotten around to doing it yet. I, oh, I'm dying to do it. That you can get on the website on
1: yep. scribeworkshop.com. Yep. So
0: if you are interested in going back, trying this out yourself, that is an available option to you.
1: Yep. And the last color that I
2: make that's historic is colonial in period, and it's a black walnut ink. Makes sense. Anyone, by the way, who is surprised by the idea of making bugs into inks might be interested to know that vermin and vermilion come from the same word. This was a common practice. Yep.
0: And also, it's still done today. (laughs) M&Ms are colored with bugs. At least the red was.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. They're also coated with, they used to be coated, no, Skittles are coated with shellac which is bugs. Yeah.
2: Yep. One question before we jump into listener things, which is what I think Zoe was about to do, because I'm sure someone listening is wondering this. What is the distinction between an ink and a pigment?
1: Ah, so a pigment is a powder that then gets ground and in period would then be tempered with something, some sort of a binder to lay it down. So an ink tends to stay sable in suspension at least and then be able to be written with. Kind of it's stored as a liquid, whereas a pigment tends to be as a powder. And then you grind it up and then you temper it either with some sort of a hide glue or egg white or egg yolk or just gum arabic, depending upon what you need out of that pigment and what you need out of that color. A pigment could also then be ground and used for oil painting. So oil painting gets used, right? Van Eyck is the first to publish a lot of oil painting recipes. And so you see that show up in the early 1400s.
0: That's where tempera comes from as... A type of art style as well. You temper the pigment.
1: Yep. To make it behave.
0: Yes. (laughs) All right. My only other question was, do you ever bring this stuff into
1: your classroom? I do. And so I do a whole week of alchemy, uh, guaranteed a whole week of alchemy at the end of the year. I think later we're going to talk about some wild thing that I did one year, which was creating an entire RPG around the theme of alchemy for the whole first six weeks of the course we definitely need to talk about that yeah later. we'll get to that absolutely but i do bring in we do a week of alchemy and then we either make ink or we make pigments depending upon how i'm feeling that year and the ink one is my favorite because i tell them to go out outside and go find things that have tannins and they go well what's a tannin i'm like look it up <laughs> and, like You all have the power of Google. Look at things that have tannins, and they're like, I can't find it. I'm like, you're looking for oak trees, and none of them bring back oak leaves because they don't know what an oak tree looks like. It's hilarious. oh no! <laughs> it's every year, every single year. um They Oaks don't even bother to like pull their phone shape. out and search for what does an oak look tree look like. Like they don't even get that far.
0: Oh no! I will
1: tell you, and they go pick up like iris leaves and stuff, which don't work at all, and. They are literally picking these flowers and iris leaves underneath live oak trees because most of the property is covered with live oaks. So it's very kind of inquiry-based. They have to go search out and find things, and then they test it, and then they add iron salts to it and see if the co- color changes. If the color doesn't change, they were unsuccessful, but they document it in an alchemy notebook, which I have made them do, and I teach them rudimentary bookbinding to create this alchemy notebook. Basically, it's the week after I've done all of the teaching that I really have to do according to the state. And then I kind of revisit the nature of what science is and we explore it through historic alchemy. And I tend to make the point that historic alchemy really and truthfully is good science. They just Mm -hmm. had less data than we do.
0: Precisely. Precisely. Except for the crazy
1: alchemy like Newton. And that dude was crazy.
0: (laughs) This is true. Newton was a little bit bonkers. See, that would have totally changed my perspective in the sciences. I had a great arts curriculum, but unfortunately, the sciences and the maths was so weak. And for me, it just, I couldn't do it. I didn't like it. I never got that far. But this is a fantastic approach.
1: The universal comment from most of my students is, we hate chemistry, but we like your class. There you go. And I'm that's, like, I'll take it. I'll fair. take it. So, yeah.
0: I feel like that's a that's a high compliment for a student to give a teacher, because my favorite would always be when my Latin students would say, oh, well, I don't like Latin, but I really like the class. I was like, okay, I'll take that one. (laughs) All right, so diving into some listener questions. Here we go. And these are with the prompt, if you could ask a medieval scribe anything, what would it be? Oh, and before we do this, this I guess this will count. What is the difference between vellum and parchment and paper? Because that's a very good baseline to draw.
1: All right, vellum and parchment are effectively the same thing in period. Modern vellum is a type of, it is a hardened, usually modified cellulose, and so it's still technically paper. When you go to the craft store and you go purchase vellum, they're going to sell you this thin, almost plasticky-feeling paper that's kind of see-through. That's fake vellum, and it can all go die in a fire. Real vellum, technically, the difference between vellum and parchment is that vellum has to be made from baby cows because it comes from
2: the French word for cow, right? (laughs) This is also where we get the word veal, if anyone wants to make that connection. yep. In fact, and why is this?
1: Because of the Norman Conquest. And that's why we have cows and veal, right? Because the rich people ate it and the poor people took care of it. Yeah. So veal, right? Vellum is where we get that term from. So the difference between parchment and vellum is that parchment is any animal technically and so it is a lime skin that's been de-haired and defleshed, and the lime helps preserve it, and then you stretch it and, it and stretch it and thin 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 it. This stretches out all of the fibers, and they align, and it gives you a very strong, fairly durable writing surface. Paper is historically made from shredded rags. So you take linen rags. Basically any cellulosic rags would have been used in period, but most of them were linen. There wasn't a whole lot of cotton flying around in Europe. And so, but there actually was a lot of nettle still being used to make fabric. So,
0: oh, interesting. Didn't know that one.
1: So, nettles, linen, cotton, any of those, you take the rags, you shred them into pieces, you then put them in what would historically have been a stamp mill. So, it's a big log that just stomps up and down on it and beats the snot out of it until all the fibers kind of come apart. It puts it in solution, and then you scoop that up into layers and sheets. So, paper is much more efficient and much faster to produce and make. And you then have a writing surface. There's more that happens to it after you've scooped it up and you've laid it out. And then there's like hot pressing and then there's dipping in gelatin size and all of these things. But paper is much faster and easier and cheaper to produce. It's also a much less durable surface. Pretty much any paper that you get your hands on, you can grab that and tear it in half. You cannot do that with 95% of the parchment you get your hands on. Yes. Um, <laughs> very, very true. much stronger and much more durable. And I would argue is just generally better. But parchment and vellum, it's whether it's made from a calf or from any other animal. And then paper is just the whole new beast that tends to supplant parchment and vellum because it is so much cheaper. Now, yep. in saying this, high quality calfskin vellum was a final product, and parchmenters became very, very skilled and started making high quality ultra thin calfskin vellum. DNA evidence shows sheep, goat, deer, badger, and squirrel, as well as calf. <laughs> mitochondrial DNA evidence shows that all of those show up in books and manuscripts as the ultra fine, super thin calfskin vellum because the parchmenters were just that skilled at thinning things down and getting that final surface. That As long as it had the quality they were looking for, no one actually cared what animal it came from because they didn't know.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And these pieces of parchment of vellum would be cut out and then bound together to make folios which would then be put together to make books and that's when you're sort of thinking of the fancy old medieval style books that is what we're talking about primarily paper and printing were more of a late medieval period renaissance invention shall we say Yep. so this is the period that we're going to be talking about for the most part is the medieval stuff
2: Future Mac here. We didn't note this, but when we say paper is a late medieval thing, that is very Europe specific. The Chinese developed paper in antiquity, and the Islamic world learned the technique from them sometime in the early medieval period, and then Europe learned it from the Islamic world sometime in the later medieval period. So outside of Europe, people already had paper in the medieval era. <laughs>
0: All right. So with that, for a scribe, what percentage of his work days are writing versus any other part of his job's duties? And this this sort of goes with the question, are you a monk? Are all scribes monks? Because many of them were.
1: So my favorite time period in scribal history is the monastic period. So from about uh, 600 or so up until about the 1200 range. The majority of scribes, professional scribes, who were doing works, particularly with books, there were professional scribes that were hired by courts to do legal documents and things like that. But if you were copying and reproducing books, most of this period was monastic. And so it was monasteries and monks who were doing this copying and this work. So the question of how much of my day is spent doing this, it depends on how good a monastery it is.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So traditionally in a monastery, you have a lot of obligations for work as well as for study. So you have obligations for work, you have obligations for study. And in a traditional older monastery, you would be doing all kinds of different work. So it would be you'd have rotations in cooking, you'd have rotations in gardening, you'd have basically everybody pitching and doing all of the things that this monastic community needed to have accomplished. Big chore charts. Right. Big chore charts, sort of. And everybody would participate. Now, if it was found and there was a scriptorium there and you were found to be skilled in this area, you would have – and actually, I spoke to a Franciscan this past week about it. Um, It was very interesting. He was talking about – I was like, oh, yeah, because there's complaints about them being accepted from prayers. He's like, you'd never get accepted from prayers. You'd be accepted from choir. And so instead Uh. of having to join everyone else to do the prayers communally, you would be doing the prayers in – the scriptorium while continuing with your writings and it's a lot of time in the day where you would be praying i said no 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 there are complaints about them being accepted from prayers not choir and he's like oh yeah that would be super controversial oh boy (laughs) and so there were monasteries who felt that if you were really skilled as a scribe they would give you exception to skip prayers choir as well as meals so that you could write longer And so, like, we're talking 14 hours a day writing and get a snack in between, right? And so there were some monasteries that it was tremendous amounts of hours. You were working every time at, you know, as many hours as physically possible to copy books. But these were actually monasteries that were complained about by other monasteries and churches. And so this was not necessarily the norm. It was kind of the worst your situation could be, which would be writing for 14 hours a day. It sounds kind of like a sweatshop. No, it's absolutely a sweatshop. (laughs) Yeah, that's why most monasteries, they produce money by making cheese or beer now because higher profit margins, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a consumable product. You're not making something that's going to last for hundreds of years. So people always come back for more. Marketing and manufacturing 101. But anyway, so on a normal day, you're talking about in a monastery, you're talking about between six and ten hours a day. This is kind of about how many hours you would be writing in a day in a monastery. So this is a monastic period. Once you get to the professional scribal period, so we're talking about the advent of the Paris Pocket Bibles and the miniature Bibles that were being produced in the, the mid to late 12th century, but re- very much so on into most of the, the Europe was actually starting to produce these by 1200, by 1250 or so. You see examples from all over Europe, not just from Paris. This is a time period when there were a lot of Bibles being produced. There were also a tremendous number of books of hours being produced. And so this is a time period where you are being paid as a scribe per gathering or per page, basically, is how the money works out to. Then you'd have a certain number of words that had to fit in those spaces as well. And so you're getting paid per amount you write And so how much money you make and how well you live and how well you eat and possibly how well your family eats is based on how many hours you can write in a week. And so typically they were shooting for 12 to 14 hour days, six days a week because you could get in trouble for doing it on Sunday. But... There was actually one guy. It's like Alfonso the Quick or something. He bragged that he could complete. <laughs> I don't ever remember his actual first name, but his you know afterwards it was the Quick. He bragged, and apparently rightly so, that he could complete Book of Ordinary Hours in a week. Wow, that is impressive. That is fabulously that's a chunk fast. Of like text too. It is intense. Now the shortest Ordinary Hours it would have summaries of certain prayers and psalms. Not the entire thing because everybody had them memorized at this point. And it was just to remind you to pray them. And so that even the summary ones, but you're still talking something that would probably take me about 120 hours to write. And for a modern scribe, like a scribe nowadays, I'm actually pretty fast mm-hmm. because I do actually do a lot of book work where I'm writing, you know, pages and pages and pages and pages and things. So, yeah.
0: Wow, that is impressive. I see. I want to know how many errors he have. Because they they weren't counting that.
1: (laughs) No, but if it's something that you all have memorized, right? So you're talking about ordinary hours. This is something that he had memorized that he'd written numerous times. And so I would say by the time he was
2: this fast, it's probably very few errors.
0: Yeah. Oh, that is impressive. Yeah. All right. So long days.
2: Long days. I'm going to be an audience stand in here. I'm sure someone has this question. What is a book of hours? Ah. So a book
1: of hours were the prayers and psalms that you should pray at certain times throughout the day. And so they were basically private devotional books for the wealthy because poor people can't afford to buy books. But they would have been the same ordinary hours that would be being prayed in the monasteries, in the churches, for all these things. and so. But it was a, a private devotional book that was used to pray certain things. And usually when you went and commissioned them, the prayers were standard, certain sets of psalms were standard, but then you could opt to have additional psalms put in that you particularly liked, and then you would choose what the illuminations were. There were fairly standard ones that would go with certain hours, or you'd have one of the depiction of the crucifixion, one of the depiction of the Annunciation with Mary, and there's several other ones that were kind of standard that everybody got. But then you'll see other things show up, and you'll see things like the three young men meeting the three skeletal versions of themselves in the woods, right? And so this was a parable that was very commonly told. It's not scripture based but you actually start to see a lot of miniatures and a lot of marginalia that now refer to other stories and other parables that were common at the time. You don't change the text because that's the hours, right? But you can get the pictures that tell the stories that you like in addition to the typical hours text.
0: Gotcha very cool. And listeners keep that three dead men, three live men in mind because we are actually including that in one of our little background projects. So, keep that one. You'll know you'll know where it comes from now. All right. So, next question here is well, one of our other questions was do you make your own inks and we've already covered that, but would especially monastic scribes create their own inks from from what I know, they largely would.
1: So the answer is typically someone in the scriptorium would. Not necessarily each monk, but there would typically be someone in the scriptorium that would make the ink. And I'll tell you, we know that each scribe didn't make their own ink because we have written marginalia that was not drawn and pretty marginalia, but just people scrawling in the margins, of scribes complaining about the quality of ink. Ah, now, if you're the one who made the ink, you're not going to write that complaint. You may complain, but you're not going to write it down because you don't want to know people that you don't even like the ink you made. But there's complaints about the quality of ink, complaints about the behavior of the ink, complaints about the quality of the parchment. And so this, this shows that there would be specializations. So it's not until you get to the mid-Renaissance that you actually start seeing evidence of certain people being praised for their quality of ink and being manufactured and selling ink. And there's still very few examples of that. But there are a couple of guys who actually get references. People like traveling to see them to purchase their ink because their ink was just so much better than everyone else's and stayed black longer and did all of these things. I like to feel that I'm one of those guys, but uh, yeah. But what happens is that in a scriptorium, you'll have a lot of people who are doing writing and probably it was the duty of one or two people to actually manufacture the ink.
0: And just out of my own curiosity, would this be someone who... Was a higher monk or a lower monk in the order? Or just would it be whenever somebody specialized in whatever they specialized in?
1: We have no idea. That makes sense. We just know that there was, you know, there's complaints about it. So not necessarily, but we don't really know who it was. We do know there's a lot of recipes for ink floating around in this time period. Um, They show up in household ledgers for wealthy people, right? So what's the term? a commonplace book. So a little bit later period, right? So early modern and you see commonplace books having recipe books in them. There's also other receipt books that show recipes from earlier periods and later periods. There's artist manuals that have recipes for ink and things like that. So uh, there's a lot floating around in this period and later period. And so we just know that everybody kind of worked on their own recipe of ink to some degree.
2: Connected question: Was the parchment also made in house, or would the monastery import that? So
1: early, early time, the parchment may have been made in the monastery, or made just outside in a in part of the village. Collected to it, there's some there's some documentation of skins being delivered to the monastery for production of parchment. I think it's it's either Duro or Lindisfarne or Kells, but we're talking seven hundreds, eight hundreds, right? But at this point, parchment is a horrifically smelly, messy, gross process. And it is something that requires a lot of specialized tools and frames and stretching frames and specialized knives and all of this.
0: Tanneries were on the outside of town.
1: Yes, typically outside of town. Now, there is an 11th century manuscript that depicts all of the steps of producing a book on this one page. And it shows... Somebody with a monk's haircut making parchment. Somebody with a monk's haircut binding the books on a sewing frame. It's actually, my sewing frame is based on that manuscript. So there, it shows the monks doing all of the steps on this one. Now, we could hypothesize that that either means all of the monks did it, or, you know, maybe philosophically they decided they would just draw themselves doing all the steps. But I would say it is, there is a large enough monastic community, if there is a large enough monastic community why wouldn't they be producing their own and tanning their own hides and mm-hmm. stretching their own things? If they're a book production center at this point, why wouldn't you bring things in-house? Because, honestly, your margins are better. Once you see professional scribes and you have a stationer who you go to to purchase the book and commission the book, who then hires the scribes and hires the illuminators and does the bookbinding himself and purchases from the parchmenter once you get to the later period, so this is 13th, 14th century, right? And you start seeing a lot of that start to develop where the jobs become so specialized because you gain efficiency. Whereas monastics, the whole monastic life is all about intentionality and labor and study, right? And so the idea of taking on additional labor and additional things that are an intentional part of the production actually fits with the monastic philosophy as well.
0: Especially because... Many of these communities were closed communities, they didn't have a lot of contact with the outside world, you would trade how you needed to, but you weren't necessarily part of the local town or whatever's going on, definitely. Oh, and fun fact here, this is always something that I like, is if you go through some of the texts that have been digitized, you can actually see holes in the parchment where it's been stretched too thin. And so scribes will write around that, even even curving along the hole. Or in other cases, you will see stitching where the parchment has been sewn back together again because it's been damaged in that process or they're just using what they had on hand. So that's very interesting to look at and to delve into. There are a bunch of digitized manuscripts at the British Library. So if you're interested, you can check all of those out. They're very, very fun. All right. Our next question. Let's see. Any tips on cutting quill pens, specifically on how not to split the ink slit too wide? I feel like this came from somebody who's tried this themselves.
1: So (laughs) the key to that is don't split it too wide. But the longer answer... Is when you're first starting to cut a quill, use a really, really sharp exacto knife. And so if you take, and the key is what a lot of people will do is there's a lot of instructions out there, in my opinion, wildly flawed, that tell you to slit that, to cut the slit from the end, to like cut into it and just kind of like gouge a knife in there and cut it. And what happens is you're shoving a wedge in something that has fibers and you end up shoving that wedge in and it splits it wide open and it splits farther than you want. The other option is to lay it upside down, stick the point of the knife where you want your slit to end, and then rock it down towards the tip. And what you end up doing is you create a stop point by shoving the end in and then rock it down and you'll feel it click and split. It will split like a half a millimeter beyond where that tip is, where you put that tip in, but generally it'll stop there. And so that's how I control how far the split is, is by using that motion to put the split in instead of trying to split from the end. There's also instructions and you'll read them where you like stick a stick in and like twitch it and it like splits it farther. And that does work technically, but that is a recipe for disaster in my opinion.
0: Sounds like it. All right. Let's see. Next question. How do you avoid or mitigate cramps and muscle strains,
1: especially if you're working 12 hour days? (laughs) So lots of stretching, taking breaks and stretching. Um, It's something when I teach classes that I will enforce about every 45 minutes to an hour. I tend to enforce a break where everybody stops and we do hand stretches and everybody stands up and moves around a little bit. I will tell you that in my personal scribal practice, I am really bad about not doing these things. I'm much better when I'm teaching classes and trying to teach other people. I have literally sat in almost one position for eight hours straight sitting and working. To the point where the crick in my neck was bad enough that I was starting to make errors that are typically associated with cataracts because you can't see straight and everything becomes blurry. I was actually making those scribal errors just because I had been hunched over too long and was starting to lose vision. So I am more than willing to admit that I am terrible about this. As my carpal tunnel syndrome becomes worse, I am much more cognizant about stretching and I'm much more careful about it. I also am at the point now where I tape my hands open at night so that I don't end up sleeping with my hands all curled up and aggravate the carpal tunnel. And people are like, there's a surgery for that now, just go get the surgery. Well, here's the thing. Best case scenario, the surgery only reduces your fine motor skills by ten percent. Ooh, which
0: is the worst case scenario
1: for you as a scribe. Worst case, it's fifty to seventy percent oh, loss boy. in fine motor skills. And so I am I am consciously and intentionally making the decision. That I write until I know that I am doing permanent neurological damage, and then I think twice about the surgery. But I tend to, the more I stretch, the more I keep things taped. If I know I'm doing a lot of stuff, I can manage it. I will also say that in my early days, I was really bad about working flat on a desk and like hunching over things with a regular steel nib dip pen or something. I now work at the medieval angle, which is about 45 degrees. And I have a much more ergonomic setup, which like this is a very torn up kind of office chair that I'm sitting on, which is not what I sit in. I actually sit in my medieval chair when I'm doing scribal work now because it actually does force me to use my back muscles instead of just kind of slumping and sitting there. So actually the ergonomics of some of the positions that you see in historic documents in in illuminated manuscripts of scribes and illuminators working Those are actually more ergonomic because it forces you to use your own body muscles instead of taking on a poor posture and not using your muscles to actually sit.
0: Fascinating. Are there any cures or remedies or anything like that that you found in your research for that kind of cramping?
1: No, but there are numerous complaints. That makes sense. Numerous complaints (laughs) of like my hand is killing me. It's like just written in the mark, like my hand is killing me or like, like my arms and neck and be- like all of my Everything body has hurts. slain me. Yeah. So it's like, there's all <laughs> kinds of like kind of little side comments. Uh, and a lot of these actually come from the monastic period. What's fabulous is they're writing in Latin in the body of the text, but then all of the scrawl in the margins is in old Irish, right? Right. They're vernacular. Right. And so, part of me wonders if maybe the prior wasn't so good at irish because he was an imported prior in this period and so that's why all of the all of the like kind of sassy comments in the margins are all in the vernacular old irish but i don't know that's entirely hypothetical on my part but it makes me laugh but you know it's the same reason why i tried to get my wife to get good enough at ancient greek so we could pass notes and no one else could read them
0: oh yes of course But see, I did that with the Futhark. I I couldn't do it with the ancient Greek. I I hated ancient Greek enough. And I went to a school where we all knew Latin. So that wasn't helpful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The other solutions that I thought of for that in particular of why there's these comments in the margins is when I was in my course learning about how these books were made. They mentioned that at the end of copying something over or writing something, the edges of the parchment would be cut off. So a lot of that marginalia you'll find in a lot of manuscripts is just half gone.
1: Yeah, and I could see that. And it depends on the size of the page and where it is. The ones that are really close to the text, you're like... There's like, no. But no, there are definitely margins that get trimmed off. You can see how heavy the trimming is. But also remember that a lot of the books that you've had access to were rebound yes, at that's least very once. True. And they get re-trimmed. In the, the 18th century and 19th century, there were some very heavy-handed bookbinders who rebound all kinds of medieval manuscripts, and they just butchered them in terms of how much of the margin they cut off. Now, I say that there's also some that like we are like, oh, man, they cut that pretty artwork. And I'm like, that pretty artwork was just painted too close to the edge. <laughs> Not that I've done that or anything before. <laughs> Definitely done that. And I'm the one who has to trim it. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> who let this illuminator do this on this page? This idiot.
0: See, everyone in the specialization circle
1: has something to complain about. Always, always. Always. And when you're the one who does all of it, and like you just complain about yourself over and over again.
0: So what lighting conditions do you typically work in?
1: So me, I typically work in very bright overhead lights, particularly when I'm doing really small miniature work. I will tell you that a lot of the books I've done, I'm working in daylight on those because typically a full book that's... So anything that's not a commission like the full books that I work in, those are my demo pieces when I'm at shows or when I'm doing workshops or something like that. I have a demo piece that I work on. And so a lot of the full completed book manuscripts that I've done that I still have that I carry around with me, those are in full sunlight because I'm at outdoor shows a lot of the times. But I've worked in really low light conditions. When I'm a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, I was at the Museum of the Bible on their manuscript floor, actually back tucked up in all the illuminated manuscripts there. And illuminating and sitting and doing demonstrations and talking to people and dressed as a monk. And it's very like it is super low light. There is only one lamp that's over my table. And it's low light on that floor intentionally to help preserve the manuscripts. It's actually fabulous because every case there is lighting, but it's very low lighting. It's mono wavelength LEDs, but it also shuts off when there's no one moving on the floor. And so even in the middle of the day, if there's not people passing through, those lights all shut off. So I'm sitting up there by myself, sitting there writing, and like all the lights start shutting off around <laughs> the room. And I'm like, I can't see anything. Oh, that is so spooky. Yeah. It's actually super fun because, you know, there's all these, you know, illuminated manuscripts and I'm sitting there illuminating, surrounded by illuminated manuscripts. I'm like, this is so cool.
0: (laughs) See, that was, that was my feeling when I was in the long room in Trinity. Yeah. You you have to go up to the main, to get to the manuscripts, you have to go through the long room and move past the curtains, you know, draw whatever it is and go back through the doors. And you just feel very special doing that, which is, which is very fun. But for, for a monk then,
1: for a monk, so I also used to write by candlelight because I thought it was cool.
0: Totally these valid were
1: in my younger days. But so, as a monk, typically, and this isn't always the case, but it depends from monastery to monastery, but there were actually somewhere there were rules where there were no candles or fires to warm them allowed in the scriptorium because there was too much risk of fire to the books. And they would actually complain because the ink was freezing and they wouldn't let them have a fire. And so there is evidence that in some scriptoria, all you had to work from was the light coming in from the windows. But they tended to be very well faced with very large open windows to be able to... C. And this is one of the reasons why cats were such a problem in the scriptorium <laughs> is because they were a necessity to keep the rodents from nibbling on things. So they were definitely pest control. They had their own problems. But you know, a cat walking through ink and stepping on your, your parchment once in a while or urinating on a page so that you don't feel like you can write on it is tr- significantly better than uh, mice and rats chewing unfinished yes. books.
0: And I will note that we have cases of both instances happening. Yes. Yes. Well, that leads perfectly into my next question, unless you ha- you had something else. No, no.
1: Keep going. Keep going. Okay.
0: <laughs> what do you do to keep pest control down? Or I guess keeps pests away and use pest control? That's so the answer cats.
1: is cats, right? But in terms of bugs and insects and things like that, uh, they were just the bane of libraries. It's bookworms, right, is one mm-hmm. of the biggest ones. And bookworms aren't just bookworms. Bookworms actually usually come out of the wooden boards. And so typically they are a byproduct of an infestation in the oak wood um, that would be pulled out. My solution is typically to use kiln dried wood uh, when I'm doing book boards. And so there's not usually any infestation is going to occur after I make the book, not before I make the book.
0: Which is very handy.
1: Yeah. But in terms of boring worms, boring through books, they like there's things you can do, but most of them they didn't know. And most of them they didn't employ in the scriptorium, even if they knew that keeping certain herbs and things would keep bugs out of your flower. There's not really a lot of evidence of them actually doing that in a scriptorium, although it would have been fabulous to actually, you know, do things like to put catmint and, you know, catmint royal thyme and oregano around the books and help to keep bugs and infestations down but there's no real evidence of actually doing that in period
0: interesting
1: i wonder why not my guess is there's not a lot of communication between the kitchen different things but also a little bit there wasn't a lot being happening to keep most of the kitchen you keep bugs out of most of the kitchen because it's filled with smoke all the time and the bugs are like this is annoying and nobody likes this and smoke in a scriptorium is less than desirable. But also, a little bit of bug in your flour is actually an improvement um, in terms of nutritional value. So,
2: <laughs> full of vitamins.
1: Like, we find flour beetles and we all freak out. And it's like, actually, that is now a high protein bread. Um, <laughs> it is no longer low protein. So, there you go.
0: Don't worry about it. Bake it in.
1: Bugs in your flour is not going to kill you.
0: Yes. I will also remind listeners we did our riddle episode for Halloween. We went through the Old English riddles. There is a riddle for bookworms that we went through. There is also several riddles about how books and how specifically a Bible is made. And it goes through the entire book making, book binding process from calf to like The one that talks about. It.
1: You have slain me. You have put uh, black tracks on me and all of that. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I actually have a print of that one. That was actually one of my first manuscripts, probably one of my first manuscripts that I actually just sold off the wall at a fair. Oh, um, that's was a nice. fantastic. Yeah.
0: Okay. So we've covered the sort of basic questions. Now getting into a little bit more in depth, what are some of the things that are most overlooked about this job, especially for people like Mac and I who are medievalists, but we're not experts in manuscripts
1: or copying ourselves? There's a lot of textual analysis that happens both in ancient period as well as medieval manuscripts about scribal errors. There's a lot of fun. People love going through and looking at scribal errors. They also enjoy looking at things like that. And the attribution for scribal errors is everybody wants to come up for a reason for it or some sort of an ailment or some sort of an issue. It's because they didn't speak, they didn't read very well, they didn't read this language. And I'll tell you, not reading a language leads to a lot more scribal errors
2: than reading the language. I thought it was because of the demon. Isn't there a (laughs) demon that's blamed for scribal errors? Uh, Titavilius or something like that? Interestingly enough,
1: most careers have patron saint's Scribes have a patron demon.
2: <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: Saint. Yeah. But yes, so that would be th- that demon would in fact be blamed for scribal errors. But as we all know, demons don't act on their own. That's sprites and fairies. Demon act by influencing humans to do wickedness. And so the scribal errors... One of my things is that everyone who writes about scribal errors and everyone who writes about transcription errors and everyone who writes about these has never done it themselves. They have never sat for 10 hours in a day and copied things. And so my argument is that do that and then come talk to me about what caused those scribal errors. It didn't have to be cataracts. Honestly, the dude with cataracts, hopefully you're not making him still copy manuscripts. Like he might be... But the dude with cataracts is probably still working the blacksmith's forge or is still working, you know, in the glass blowers, because honestly, that's how he got the cataracts in the first place was staring at the bright hot fire all the time.
0: Not the page. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Right, not the page, the page like that's not really cataract inducing. And yes, there's other reasons for cataracts. But so so my argument is that not knowing the language, that one seems completely valid. I've made all of those mistakes. There's some other ones that tend to get attributed to physical ailment that can actually just be a byproduct of being a scribe for that many hours a day, days on end. And so I tend to feel that we try to explain away things in terms of errors without ever having understood the physical toll that the actual job takes on And so I think that that is one that I tend to, I think is overlooked frequently is just the physicality. I feel like, well, I mean, it's just writing. It's not that bad. Like for 12 like, hours. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. And with a quill, I will tell you writing for 12 hours with a regular pen is a completely different beast than writing for 12 hours with a quill. So.
0: So would that include for you the tremulous hand in terms of medical condition versus just so it
1: for so long yeah so the tremulous hand is when i stop gotcha for the day <laughs> like honestly like i i'm like nope you need to stop you're done writing even if it so like the tremulous hand can be a medical condition but the question is is that is the tremulous hand is it is it only for a few pages is it everything that hand writes is it now the tremulous hand can also be one of the byproducts of the ulnar tunnel problem. So there's a, the carpal tunnel is the one everybody knows. It's right here. It causes these three fingers, your thumb and your first two fingers to go numb. Um, and it's actually only half of that second finger. The ulnar tunnel, which is the one in your elbow, causes the other two and a half fingers to go numb. And so when I'm having really bad problems, I will have all of those act up as well as my shoulder muscles and my back muscles that come over and I will have like, I will actually sit and do this and not be able to feel. And so I, those are the points where I'm like, nope, I have to stop now.
2: For the listeners, when he said do this, he was trembling. Oh yeah, I was shaking
1: my hand. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You you could hear it, right? You could hear the shaking of the hand. Um,
0: (laughs) We'll put sound effects in. We'll do that in post.
1: (laughs) So if it's your job and you have to do it for that many hours, there is entirely a chance that it doesn't matter. You have to push through and just keep going. And as long as it's readable, you just keep going. Now, if it's that that is their hand all of the time, then no, that's a completely different issue. Or it's permanent damage from having written for so many years that now you have that permanently because the byproducts of both carpal tunnel and ulnar tunnel problems is that you have pinched that nerve for so many years and for so long that you've now caused permanent nervous system damage to those extremities. So I I tend to I tend to be of the opinion that, yes, it could be a separate related thing. But if you're talking about somebody who writes all day, every day, it actually could be that they have that health condition because of that job. Gotcha.
0: Makes sense. And for listeners who are less familiar with this term that we're using, tremulous hand, it's a particular I think it's not just one manuscript. It's a series of manuscripts or a series Mm -hmm. of works that have been attributed to perhaps one, perhaps a few different scribes known as, quote unquote, the tremulous hand, because you can see the shaking in the writing itself. And there's there's so much debate about, is this one person? Is this multiple people? What condition caused this? Blah, 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 blah. So that particularly piqued my interest, because it makes sense to me that it, it could come from overwork as someone who yeah. like, currently has back problems from overwork, you know, lifting incorrectly if you wear your body out. I know nothing
1: out. about that. I know <laughs> nothing about that.
0: Yeah. So you can wear your body out and yep. who knows? All right. So that's one of the most overlooked things. Is there anything else that immediately comes to mind?
1: One of my favorite ones to lecture on is the hazards of the pigments that illuminators use. So less about scribes, more about illuminators. So there's actually one of the talks I give, which is beautiful colors and how they can kill you. And so a lot of the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful colors are heavy metal based. And so we like to think that people didn't understand the hazards of heavy metals. And yeah, they did. They absolutely knew that mercury was bad for you. Um, One of my favorites is Orpiment, which is a beautiful, beautiful kind of shimmery yellow color. that gets used for a very long period of time, but it was used as a poison. In the Roman period, like, everyone knew it could kill you. Everyone knew that this was bad for you to lick, but it was still used as a pigment because it's so pretty and there was no good substitute for it in terms of painting with yellow until you get synthetic
2: lead tin yellow that comes in. And yes, the safer
1: alternative was a lead-based
2: pigment this does continue into the modern period i think until just a couple hundred years ago we were still making green with arsenic uh, that was a sh- the, the
1: arsenic green was a really short period really in the victorian era so it it was created in the victorian era killed a whole bunch of people in the victorian era <laughs> and then it was immediately kind of like hey we really shouldn't be using this anymore and then they tried to like the pigment manufacturers tried to rebrand it as rat poison and things like that Basically, they're like, we got to get rid of this somehow. And so the arsenic green is one of it's the the poison green, right, is one of the most fabulous Mm. kind of stories, because what made it so toxic wasn't just that it was arsenic, but it was a horribly unstable pigment. Like, yeah, it's a pretty color, but like it has an appreciable vapor pressure, which means that when you put this pigment and you dye all of this wallpaper in a room, this beautiful green color enough of the arsenic vaporizes that it kills the lady who sits in that room all day every day (laughs) oh gosh at least one example if not more it was used to dye some dresses that when worn without a proper chemise killed two people like we're talking about like a time period where this green pigment was like knowingly killing people and so then it kind of got like it, it's a very like, yes, it was being used up to a certain point, And this was in the 1900s. Right. So it wasn't that long ago, but it wasn't it was only invented um, about 50 years before that or something mm-hmm. like that.
0: There was also the radiation that was coming from a certain oh, pigment that that's, women would that's... lick their brushes to oh, keep yeah. them damp. That was just straight radium,
1: it. I think. Yeah. No, that was just radium. That was yeah. radium-based paint. So the beauty of this was, they didn't just lick their brushes, right? Like So that's the nice story. No, they thought it was cool. They painted their teeth with it, so they walk around with glowing teeth, right? So it was fabulous, yeah, and it produces fossy jaw, because radiation just eats away your whole jaw, and your jaw just dissolves, and you die of cancer Ugh. from your teeth and jaw and tongue and mouth and cheeks and then it all kind of pops right into your brain real fast because it eats through all the bone tissue is what happens um but yeah no the radium Mm. women that's a whole thing yeah so Mm. the thing is is like just because you use an artist pigment and they tell you that it is probably safer than what used to be used um hexavalent chromium will still kill you bubby. like it's not good
0: no Mm -mm. all right so they absolutely knew that some of these inks could kill you. And but it's them. pretty,
1: so we use it anyway. <laughs> right? Like, this is the philosophy of artists. I don't care if it's dangerous.
2: It looks nice. I mean, and they're monks, right? So it's in God's hands.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, and of course, definitely expendable. Yes.
0: As, as Hildegard always says, you know, this will heal him if God wills it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so... Two more manuscript related questions and then we're going to switch it into our D&D and uh, TTRPGs. What are your favorite manuscripts and why? And what is the easiest and hardest script to do and why? Because mm. you you do multiple scripts from different time mm. periods, which is one of the things that m- most impressed me. Like you didn't just pick one time period and script to focus on. You're not like I'm gonna do the gothic. No,
1: you're you're doing them that's all. what everybody does, right? And then they do the modernized gothic version. Ugh,
0: and, I hate the ugh, modernized gothic the version. Yeah. <laughs> anyway,
1: I mean, it's fabulous on the back of your truck in all capitals with your. Last name. <laughs>
0: You're so bad, guy.
1: Sorry, that's a personal pet peeve. Um if you're in Texas, you see that a lot where it's all capitals, black letter with someone's last name on the back of it and it just like it's modern Oh my gothic. gosh, that was it's never intended horrendous. to be all capital. Anyway, so so <laughs> my favorite manuscripts, all-time favorites is probably still Lindisfarne Gospels. So the Lindisfarne Gospels was all produced by one guy. He was a monastic scribe and illuminator. He did the entire thing by himself and nobody else helped, which for a gospel book, so that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from the New Testament, that is a fabulous amount of work and the degree of illumination, but what you gain from it, and everybody talks about the Book of Kells, which I also really like. It's probably my second favorite, but the Book of Kells has no... There is no common vision and art style that goes throughout the whole thing. You get multiple Illuminators. Estimates from anywhere between, it's like 6 and 15 Illuminators. Mm-hmm. You have between, you know, 3 and 7 Scribes. Typically people run some right around 4 but so i really love that time period i love those manuscripts but the lindis foreign gospel stands out to me above the others because it is just such a fabulous example of one person doing that work so that is in fact my hero in all of scribing history because of just such a fabulous manuscript and just so well executed and just has this common thread throughout it and then i also love the gloss that was added Mm-hmm. About one to two hundred, like a hundred years later, and so you get and the two anyway. So I really like that one, all time favorite. And then I go through kicks, right? So right, right now this year, my current kick is the Luttrell Salter.
2: I love the Luttrell
1: it's Salter, so and so fun. because I'm doing a lot of the custom work that I'm doing this year, just really, really worked with the Luttrell. Some of the elements from the Luttrell Salter. I've also done. I recently did a workshop, this is actually at the Museum of the Bible, where we've typically, the workshops we've done there were illuminated letter workshops. And I was like, you know, let's not, let's do marginalia. And so then I pulled marginalia, I pulled it from everywhere because everybody wanted the rabbits and the snails and all of that. So I had a bunch of those too, but then I just pulled crazy stuff from the Luttrell Psalter. And actually my 12 year old daughter was like looking over my shoulder while I was working on this and trying to like pull screenshots. And she's like, that's really fun. Can I look through it? I was like, yeah, actually, I need to be painting. How about you go? And so I showed her how to screenshot and she screenshotted like all kinds of the the crazy margin things. Basically pick the ones that you think are cool and crazy and whatever. And so it was, you know, it, it was probably a hundred images and we're talking from the first 20% of the book, 25% yeah. mm-hmm. of the book or something. And oh, it's just yeah. mad stuff. Fabulous. So two of the pieces that I've done this year for commission work, every element in them came from Blue Shell Salter. Wow. Very Except nice. one of them, I choose a different hand to do. And the other one, I actually pulled the hand from the Luttrell Salter as well. And so I really like those. There's another one coming up and what the lady wants isn't from the Luttrell Salter. And my brain is still going, but maybe. <laughs> so Luttrell is probably when I actually get to doing a Salter. I'm either going to pick from a Byzantine era Salter to produce a Salter, or I'm going to do Luttrell. What I'm tempted to do is to do the venerable beads abbreviated Psalter in the style of mm-hmm. the Luttrell Psalter so then I can put fabulous things on every page but it's also so much shorter than doing the entirety of the Psalms mm-hmm.
0: yes and use a
1: Byzantine use it more Byzantine style or Carolingian style for the actual full book of the Psalms but anyway my goals are to do one book of the Bible at a time kind of as I go although my next one may be Beowulf so
2: Ooh, What are your feelings on the Rutland Psalter? That's one of the other ones we refer to a lot.
0: Oh, and listeners, if you are interested in seeing either Marginalia from the Luttrell or Rutland Psalter, you can find those on our Instagram. We have taken a bunch of those and suggested ideas and stats for different D&D creations. So you can check those out there.
1: So my opinions on the Rutland Psalter is that yes? No, I do. I've actually pulled elements from the Rutland Psalter. I didn't remember the name of it. I think it's it's one that has. I really like the margin art on it. I feel like it's kind of in a similar style, uh, more sophisticated style, but not a dissimilar period and kind of philosophy and like let's put as much crazy stuff as we can, <laughs> like the Luttrell. Um, but it has better miniatures, so I would say the Rutland actually has is the one that has kind of more detailed minute, like larger full page miniature pieces. Whereas the the Luttrell tends to be more integrated, where everything is supposed to fit together on the page, so definitely a different school inscribed, but yeah, no, it's, one, it's the one with the, the guy with the flippers getting shot in the butt with the arrow. Like who doesn't love that?: <laughs> Yeah, that's one that of the fabulous piece. ones. So <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, and the guy doesn't really, and the one doing the shooting is like his head is actually in his chest. No neck.: Yeah. I think I don't like the borders as well. I don't feel that the pages are as balanced. Like from from like a philosophical standpoint, they're using both in the gutter and on the outside of the page, the border width is very similar instead of choosing to use thin borders in the gutter and thick borders on the outsides of the page, which I tend to appreciate more kind of aesthetically. I like the thin borders in the gutter, but that's just because, I don't know, because I like really small gutters in my books. Personal style, why not? Exactly, that's what it really comes down to. But it's one that, yeah, I've actually used elements from it. I just didn't remember the name when you said it. I was like, "Huh, that sounds familiar, but I don't remember."
2: I mean, I usually just think of it as the one with the goblins. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that's yeah <laughs> the goblins that valley.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, those so... are
2: goblins. Those are they look Irish gobliny people. to me.
1: <laughs> no, but like, ah, oh, yeah. Anyway. I have a new feminist reading of uh, knights versus snails, though, anyway. Oh, God bless. All right. So these are the things my brain does, right? Like when I have nothing else going on and I'm supposed to be trying to go to sleep and then my brain goes on to like sideways tangents, right? But what if the snail is more of the... What if the snail represents women and the knights represent men? And there are several reasonings why a snail could represent a woman. Yes. Whether Mm -hmm. from the actual anatomical dimensions of, you know, the the female internal anatomy. Mm Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, other reasons that I don't feel like talking about, but y'all know what I'm talking about. Yes. Anyway, so what if that's the actual reading, and this is why snails win every time? And maybe the knights are worshipping the snails sometimes? Anyway I'm here for this reading Right? Right? So this happened like three nights ago Yeah, this happened (laughs) like two or three nights ago I'm laying in bed going Oh That kind of works Huh Interesting Anyway, so
2: Hmm. I think it's worth developing
1: I think it's And you know what? Somebody could get a PhD out of it Because they just give those out for whatever crazy theory
0: Oh, I know, nowadays
1: (laughs) Physicists. That's how theoretical physicists get their degrees. They just make (laughs) stuff up, throw some math on the page and call it a PhD.
0: I know a guy who literally wrote his senior thesis for his undergrad on the physics of anime titty jiggling. That was his senior thesis.
1: Was it in game theory or in physics?
0: It was in engineering.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That would fly for a senior thesis for sure.
0: Oh, yeah. So he passed. it would
1: probably get you a master's degree, but not a PhD. Not quite
0: a PhD material yeah, right there. Not exactly. quite. Go figure. Okay, so hardest and easiest
1: scripts. Hardest and easiest scripts. So if you had asked me this opinion, are we allowed to extend beyond the medieval period for this question? Sure. All right. Why not? So let's go medieval period first. Easiest to learn, in my opinion, is Unseek. Yes, 100%. Early period, 7th century unseal, easiest to learn, really hard to do well, but easiest to learn and kind of acquire and get your hands on. Hardest to do is probably Paris pocket Bible sized. So pocket Bible sized gothica bastarda, because in my opinion, the gothica bastarda exists because of the pocket Bibles. Because what happens is if you do the more formal gothic, even the faster version, you lose readability at that scale. So for those of your listeners who aren't familiar, Paris Pocket Bible X height, so that is the lowest letter, right? The A's and the X's and things like that tend to be about 1.1 to 1.5 millimeters high. Itty bitty. That is tiny. Yes. Yeah, it's fabulously fun to do as well. But so once you start writing that size, if you try to do a more formal style, you lose readability completely. But what happens in the Gothic of Astarda is you change the ending of the letters that look the same ever so slightly. So the H drops below the line. The N ends, the M curves up, the U has a flat top, and then a curve into it. So all of these letters that in the more formal style, you would figure out through context and through spacing, you're now in a size where spacing becomes non-existent and you really can't tell it. And so instead of being able to do it through spacing, you do it through by changing the terminal stroke of each of those common letters ever so slightly. And so by doing this, you gain readability, but it's also very, very tiny. And so pulling it off at speed in that size is probably one of the hardest ones that I do.
2: Is it called Bastarda because people were so frustrated by having to do it? <laughs> <laughs> no. So
1: all of the names we have with scripts are all modern inventions or when I, fairly modern inventions. Like we made up these names. We said, oh, that's, that's gothic. That's gothica textura quadrata because everything's made with quadrangles and it's very used for text and it's from the gothic period. And then they're like, what's that? Well, it's kind of like gothic, but like somebody bastardized it. Oh, there we go. (laughs) And that's gothica bastarda is because somebody took gothic and it got bastardized and it's all kind of changed, but it definitely came from regular gothic. So the hardest one, and I can't ever remember, it is a variant of Gothica Textura, where instead of doing a sloped angle at the bottom, you actually come down and you flatten out the bottoms. And so you do this little like extra curve where you roll the quill up on a corner and you do that curve up and you draw and fill that in. And so that one takes the longest because it is just painful to do at the end. I love how it looks. It's absolutely fabulous. It's what you see in the Lutrell Psalter. And actually, I think the one that you just referenced... Does it use it? Hold on. No, it does not. It does not. Yeah, so it uses the, the other one, which is much nicer and well-behaved to do. So those are probably... Now, easiest to do if we extend into the early modern period, because I just taught a week of this, is early modern secretary hand. What I argue is why it's easier is because it doesn't matter how good it looks as long as it's close enough. And so anything that's actually a common people's handwriting and not a formal scribal script becomes easier. And so modern cursive tends to come out of English round hand and Spenserian, Right. Early Modern Secretary is one of the harder ones to do, but I was, like, successfully taught a group of 15 people how to do it, and by the time we got to the end, they were writing an Early Modern Secretary with a quill. Whereas, if I had tried to do the same thing with a formal unseal, it would have been so much more painful, and it would not have looked like unseal, because none of them would have had the hand dexterity to be able to do it, but... Because that wasn't actually required to do the Secretary Hand, I felt that it was actually once we got over some of the early hurdles, it started looking like Secretary Hand faster because the bar is really low.
0: Fair enough. Very cool. Okay. So are we ready to jump into the world of TTRPGs? I'm
1: I'm not sure. I think I'm ready. I'm not sure. Okay, let's do it.
0: Okay, so- Jumping in, if you could make a scribe as a and d class, what traits and skills or feats, what would you give a scribe as a class?
1: So you, you gave me this question ahead of time, and I've been thinking about it. And I think I would create the scribed character very similar to a bard. Okay. However... He doesn't sing. He has to already have all of the stories pre-written and just passes off tiny books to people for them to read and be inspired or to read and be. And so it's like you front load all of the heavy work and you have to show up (laughs) with all of these books and like a giant like backpack slash shelf and maybe even a chained bookshelf that he carries around with him and can like pass out the pre-finished book that does the inspiration. So basically it's a support class and it has similar mechanics to to like a bard character or something like that. And I go into this with more knowledge about World of Warcraft than I do about other characters, but I assume everybody stole from D&D, so...
0: Oh yes, feel free. All systems are welcome here.
1: So it's all about inspiration and like encouragement or healing or whatever but like you have to whip out the right book for it and if you haven't pre-written the book right so so then these booklets they're almost more pamphlets get consumed and so he has to have, you know, they they get used up in the process. But so there's, like, this weird, and I don't know how it would actually work in-game, but, like, this, this horrific, like, front-loading of, like, it's like, oh, wait, well, we're going to go on a quest. It's like, actually, the scribe has to go hunt geese first and... find something to write on good luck (laughs) and you could use like you know you could use birch bark as a cheap substitute or like go through all of the materials right so there's like the wooden books or the birch bark books or the you know parchment or papyrus or paper or whatever so anyway it was uh maybe maybe if you make it out you use parchment as your raw material you can use it twice there you go paper it you know only gets to use once if you use birch bark it actually stops halfway through and you'll get half the effect or something but anyway so i was thinking about it and i was like what because i would want it to be funny too
0: yes 100 percent. oh i love it use your downtime carefully for that one exactly (laughs)
1: exactly yeah there it is there is no downtime for the scribe Okay, so I like the resource management aspect. Yeah, Yeah.
0: you adore everything resource management. It's my favorite (laughs) part about whenever we get to D and D &D stuff. You're like, how can we use the resources from this text? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so open question for all three of us, and I took a couple notes and ideas here. How else can players and GMS incorporate medieval scribes into their games? And I can start as you guys think if you want. So, the first one that I came up with is that you could create like a an ink master class or you just use scribe or something and It's sort of alchemist, I guess it wouldn't be artificer, but you can incorporate that and you have to have a knowledge of chemicals. And so instead of having, for instance, I don't know, a rogue or whatever other character you have who knows their chemicals and alchemy and that sort of thing, instead you have like a pyromaniac sort of crazed, chemical-obsessed scribe.
2: I
1: feel really called out right now.
2: (laughs) I feel like pyromania and scribehood combine badly. Uh, they I actually think combine really quirk. well, uh, <laughs> Oh, really well in personal experience.
1: <laughs> so I was actually going to go into explosives chemistry at one point in my career. I've also made fireworks and like aerial shells and rockets and all kinds of things. So I, did not I would say in my personal experience, home. pyromania and scrimal work actually go together really well.
2: I suppose as long as you keep them in separate
1: areas. No, no, they have to have their own buildings, right? So for sure. <laughs> Same impulses. Exactly. (laughs) Mixing things together and seeing what pretty colors happen. Do the colors explode
0: or do they just shine prettily and dry? Who knows? I was thinking of actually creating
1: NPCs. So like scribal NPCs. And and there's lots of examples, both monastic and non-monastic in things. But the idea of, in my mind, it would be that, you know, scribal characters would come across as very kind and helpful and fairly knowledgeable because they read books and entirely legitimate monks because, you know, they just sit and write all day. There's definitely nothing nefarious. If you've ever watched or read Cadphile, Yes, that monk has a suspicious amount of understanding of medieval poisons. That is all I'm saying. Incredibly. <laughs> And so, so the idea of that someone who is well read and copies and sits alone all day, every day with nothing to do but think about things to do could lead to very creative and in terms of their nefariousness, right? So there's always the stereotype of like the evil necromancer or the evil this or the whatever, but the entirely innocuous scribe who you come across with and they helps you out and he gives you advice because he's very knowledgeable about all th- kinds of things. And then, you know, as things progress, you start to realize that there's something weird about this guy. So anyway, just the, the variety that you could have for an NPC. You could also go for something like an anchorite, right? Or an anchoress yes. who have locked themselves in a room and are writing. There's a, a film project that I've been helping with and consulting on it's basically around the first book written in English by an anchoress, or first book written by a woman. It's either first book written in English by a woman or first book written by a woman. But she was an anchoress locked in a room. It's the Revelations of Divine Love. That was the name of her book that she wrote. Wow. Um, but, and, and so the idea of an anchorite or an anchorist that is writing and is scribing and is doing things and is writing things, but you just get to talk to them through the little window and give them food but you don't actually know what's going on in there. And so there's that air of mystery for it. So anyway, so my brain went kind of sideways with NPC generation.
2: I like it. Now that we've mentioned holy people and necromancers in the same paragraph, I assume Zoe would like to share her favorite fact.
0: Oh, well, my favorite medieval fact (laughs) is that the majority of necromancers during the Middle Ages were clerics. Fun fact. Because exorcisms counted as necromancy and also you would have in part well for a lot of for a lot of medieval writers exorcisms counted as necromancy because you're dealing with demons and such right right and a lot of this comes down to the fact that essentially you have priests or those in the church who were essentially in positions of middle management and were not particularly pleased about this. And they wanted to kind of get up in the ranks. And so they figured the best way to do this was to, you know, they have all these books. They know all these wonderful things. If you just make a deal with the devil in the name of God, what could possibly go wrong?
2: Lots of time just letting your mind wander while you copy books. <laughs> Come up with all kinds of Well, and of it's ideas. also the stereotype,
1: right, was the oldest son- takes over the title and land. So for wealthy individuals, the oldest son takes over the title and land and you send the second son to the church so that he doesn't compete with, his heirs don't compete with, he doesn't compete with the oldest son, right? And usually you could purchase them a much higher role than just monk, right? So you could actually, the wealthy, wealthy fathers could purchase basically becoming a prior mm-hmm. of a monastery or becoming a prior. And so that's where you get a lot of the misbehavior and, and misdeeds of a lot of the, the, the clergy. It's not the lower clergy who are there specifically to worship God, but those who shipped off there by their parents. And they were yep. terrible human beings before they entered the clergy.
0: Yep. Working with that idea, one of the other ideas that popped into my head when you guys mentioned that there was a patron devil is Obviously, we need a warlock who is a scribe who has a scribal background. <laughs> That's what popped into my head. New player character. He's a warlock, but his backstory is that he's a scribe. He got kicked out.
1: Yep, yeah, and they they call up the the patron demon and uh just mess with the artificers who are
2: trying to inscribe
1: <laughs> on objects. <She> it <laughs> won't won't f- work. Ugh, why did I write it wrong? How, <laughs> this never
2: happens. Would be interesting to give them a set of spells that are like one letter off of regular oh, yeah. spells. Oh yeah,
1: it'd be hilarious. I don't know what happened.
2: Oh man. You know, another uh, idea is all these different inks. One of the things you do in in D anD D, and I assume many other fantasy RPGs, you have magical scrolls and spell books. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are extra effects if you have if you have written your scroll with the proper ink. There you yeah. go. Or Illuminated it with with special pigment. Mm-hmm. Did you use the gold?
0: That's. I think that's an underutilized market in fantasy role playing. Like we've got our magical salespeople who have all the magical items, but where's the magic ink sellers? We've got our our scrolls and all of that, but where's the magical ink? Underutilized.
2: Also, I wonder which fantasy monsters would make good parchment. Ooh, that's a good question.
1: Whatever, like minotaurs. Um, so basically, if it if it is a, a ruminant animal, it tends to produce better parchment because it has less oils and greases in the skin. And so it tends to you tend to have things like, you know, so traditionally goat, sheep, cow, pig is pretty terrible because it's a little too fatty and a little bit too squishy of a skin. Same reason human makes terrible parchment. It's fine for bookbinding leather, but not good for parchment. And remember so, that. Yeah, remember that.
2: Oh, don't. Maybe don't remember that. Maybe just forget <laughs> it.
0: It'll be in the next True Crime podcast.
2: I know a few university libraries do have books bound in human skin. And it's
1: the binding, not the parchment, right? It's the binding. Because it works the same as pigskin, honestly. But I would say the fantasy creatures that come that are of similar hybrid natures, right? So your bird-type creatures, your cow, goat, sheep. So fawns would probably be fantastic on the lower half. Ha <laughs> ha!
0: <laughs> oh no we just started something very bad
1: <laughs> or something great minotaurs on the upper half right so
0: yeah oh no
1: yeah and you can use the their horns right so you use the horns as inkhorns, horns you cut the tips off and turn those into mm-hmm. ink horns there
0: you go sphinxes i suppose oh Griffins. Sphinx. yeah yeah Griffins.
1: parts of them right it depends on whether you're on the on the lion part or not because lions yes. are probably not good parchment but that's fair There's actually a patent from Israel to use turkeys for parchment, turkey skin parchment, because it's a kosher animal and therefore it could be used for parchment. The patent exists. The market for turkey parchment does not exist. (laughs) Nobody wants it. It's all speckly and terrible.
0: Good to know. I think that exhausts my D&D ideas.
2: (laughs) Aren't cows also kosher?
1: Yeah, they are. And that's traditionally what's used, is calf. It was just, you know, somebody had what they felt was a business opportunity and patented it. And one of the, when I was looking through, I don't even remember why I was looking at patents and looked up parchment. But it was in my, I don't remember how I ended up there, but I found this patent for turkey parchment and it was hilarious. But no, they like Torah scrolls are made on calf, typically goat sheep or calf, but calf is usually preferred.
0: Interesting. All right. So at the start, you talked about this RPG that you did for your class one year. So tell us about that.
1: All right. So I had this idea. I had been doing, watching some, there's a, a guy who did a lot of gamification for an eighth grade class in his private school that he taught in, little eighth grade. It's an eighth grade science class. So one of the things is even in public education, eighth grade has a lot of leeway and they have very little content. They actually have to teach and have a lot of leeway in how they teach that content. And in a private school, there's literally no actual rules as long as you don't get in trouble. And so he did all of this tabletop RPG stuff and created systems and everything. And I was like, you know, what would be cool is if I did that for high school chemistry. And so I created a tabletop RPG. It was more tabletop, more kind of IRL RPG. And so everybody, it starts with us binding up alchemy journals. Everything they do goes in their alchemy journals. And the idea is that they are new initiates into the consortium of alchemists. And so they are all kind of there. And we start out with the history of alchemy and they have all of these things they have to go on and these kind of quests they have to go on to research and understand and we have like lessons and tests and things or kind of boss fights. The most underutilized part of the game was I created an entire complex crafting system around potions and that they had to purchase chemical elements from the periodic table and there were random element packs. And so there were the rare elements that would be rare and there were the common elements that would be common. And then they had to experimentally create and test with me how to create these potions and so some of them were obvious right so it was the potion of urination which was the one that gave them permission to leave the classroom and go to the restroom this is the one i gave to all of them and basically taught them how to make the recipe for it it was just water and so so the joke in all of these potions was that they were all either completely legitimate chemical formulas to create things and I also told them that they could create their own and if they could just once they reached a certain level if they could justify to me why this formula would produce this effect and I agreed with them I would generate that potion card for them and so there were also hidden effects for every potion card that I didn't tell them about but that they could experimentally determine and guess so it was this stupid complex system so when I created this RPG, I created it as a two-week session at the end of one year. And so we did it for two weeks. They thought it was cool. It was fun. It was interesting. Also, my wife, who has her master's in English literature, wrote all of the storylines for it. And then I acted all of them out with different voices at a, as a radio program, basically. And so there were audio clips that went with the storyline for every single class day. And we did this. So the first we did like the two weeks and then it seemed successful. So then I generated it for the the full six weeks for the second. And my goal was to actually do it for a full semester, but I wanted to reevaluate how effective I thought it was after each six weeks. So included in this was they could earn or they would generate every day a dice roll and I'd give them a small die and then they could roll that dice on a giant game board that their team had a character that was on there and then there were various monsters and locations and activities and so they could move points and move around and interact with these things. And I improvised the character interactions and battles on the fly every single (laughs) time in the day. So you have to realize I'm also less leveling them up they're earning gold oh yeah and i laser printed coins of three different currencies gold silver and coppers of different (laughs) sizes and designed them and so they had physical hard currency that they would earn every day through completing things and completing quests so they earned money they purchased things they did anyway it was stupid complex i also had a game and point system that went into it that was related to grades but also related to stuff that happened on the tabletop map but also related to like potion creation, and so there's this complex Google sheet that generates all of their scores, and they could see a constant scoreboard comparing each individual, each class, and then also each team table team, and like we're talking about me like improving game interactions every single class period while giving them work to do while also maintaining all of this point scoring. And trying to fill in a grade book at the same time. Also, their grade book started out at zero. So I filled out every assignment for the full six weeks and gave them zeros for every single assignment. And so nobody got to a passing grade until about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the six weeks which made them all stress out because they're used to all having good grades. And I'm like, no, no, it's a zero sum point system, right? You all start with zero and you earn it by completing things. And I sent a letter to parents explaining all of this. So I had like two kids who loved it. I mean, absolutely loved it, thought it was the greatest thing ever. One of them was like, Understood that, like, the crafting system and potion creation system was how to manipulate the game and win. And so, like, she was trying everything and spending all of her money that she earned on those element cards and creating elements and, like, buying or asking or, like, cajoling for tips as to how to make things. And of course, she's the only one actually engaging in this very complex and robust mm-hmm. crafting system I created. <laughs> so I'm like, let's like sure. I'll, I'll help you all you gotta bribe me though like you gotta pay like for me to like you gotta come up with some sort of a bribe scheme to like bribe the game master and make this happen so she brought me like a muffin like it was hilarious <laughs> <laughs> oh and so i was like this isn't as your teacher this is as the game master right these are two separate interactions you cannot purchase a grade but i will absolutely help you learn how to craft And so it's all of this stupid stuff but like her team, they would roll through a fight because she had cards and she's like, nope, (laughs) this potion will do this. And she's like, there's a poison potion that basically so basically most of the secret effects affected the game board and the game world. So there were potions, so there were elixirs and poisons were the types of potions They're two different separate things. And one of the potions, it was a potion of destruction or something like that. And it was like it will allow you to skip a quiz for a day. And so like it's like physical kind of academic effect was that it gave you like a better grade or it let you skip it and take it another day or do something like that. And she goes, I'm going to use this in game. And it was like they go find the guy who's like I've killed other people with like he's obviously a boss. He's wrecking people. And she goes in and she drops this card. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. You win. And it was like she, like she was so happy. So anyway, by the time we're done with the first six weeks, I go through and do an analysis. Basically, grades are the same or lower than on an average <laughs> oh. in terms of like actual chemicals. So like grades were about the same, but grades are fake. We all know that teachers can manipulate grades to make them look however they want. Yeah. When I actually looked at like what I felt my students knew and understood, they were mm-hmm. better at safety. There was a whole storyline behind the safety. And so I've actually kept the storyline that teaches the safety lesson, the week of safety lessons, that storyline stays in my class now. It doesn't have all the game mechanics, it doesn't do all the other stuff, but the storyline is there and the activity is still there. But I basically realized that I am working three or four times harder than I normally would, like stupid amounts of time in class and outside of time, and I'm literally stressed. Mm Mm-hmm trying to run the game mechanics instead of actually going and, like, asking pointed questions and teaching kids. <laughs> <laughs> and so I felt that they actually were learning less through this game right? because there's so much content that has to be taught in high school chemistry. And so I was like, no, if I was doing, like, seventh sixth seventh eighth grade this would be fabulous because honestly there's not that much content they have to know and they've actually already done most of it once already right whereas once you get to high school chemistry there's a lot more process stuff a lot more math a lot more things like that and so I basically scrapped it after the first is six or eight weeks and we actually had the rest of the storyline, I think, written out for the second six weeks. And I had like plans and directions for it to go, but basically determined it was not helping anyone learn anything. It was fabulous and it was fun, but it was tremendous amounts of work for actually less game, in my opinion. Right. So, oh, yeah. that's a shame. I still want to do it again, though. I just got to figure out a better way. I think if I digitize the whole thing... And so all of the game mechanics were digital. It might be less tactile and engaging, mm-hmm. so they, didn't, they don't actually have things physically. But then I wouldn't have to spend so much time managing the game. I could focus more on the teaching. So if I could automate some of those systems... I think it would work better. I just don't have time to actually build and program that. That Yeah. Yeah. I could do it all in twine. If you are familiar with what twine is. It's Yeah. So like I, it would actually all work in twine, but I don't have that kind of time.
0: Yeah. No, that would be a big project. Still. That is fantastic though. Yeah. Our teachers do not get paid enough in the States. It drives me crazy.
2: This is very true.
0: Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Lucas. Absolutely. Comment coming on. And, yes, please tell everybody once more where they can find you and all your brilliant stuff. If you want to either purchase prints, purchase original manuscripts, you guys, you can purchase the original works, which is so cool. You can find the kits on how to make the inks yourself and, and so much more.
1: So it's scribalworkshop.com, S-C-R-I-B-A-L, workshop. If you can't spell workshop, look it up on Google. And so scribalworkshop.com. It's also scribal Workshop on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also just search for my name, Lucas Tucker, on Facebook. I've started putting more reels on there and things like that because Facebook is changing their whole algorithm. So, yeah. you know, we learn with the times. But you can also actually find our products on Amazon or on Etsy if you feel more comfortable shopping in those locations. I like my website better because I actually have more things on there. And so the prints are up on our website. They're not on Amazon. And as Zoe said, you can actually purchase original manuscripts. Most of them aren't listed, but either I still have it. And if I don't still have it, I will make you one that looks the same but better. And so I take commissions. My usual timeline for commissions is about a year long process unless you commission an entire book and then it's usually longer.
0: All right. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. You are always welcome back on the show. It's been awesome to have you here and pick your brain about how scribes worked in the Middle Ages and learning about very toxic properties of inks (laughs) that they used.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It has been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to The Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, you can check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, for more medieval and geeky-related discussions. And feel free to reach out. We are always excited to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and we're on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Special thanks to Sandra Boyle for creating our music. You can check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify.
2: Oddly enough, we didn't have any good bloopers this week to put at the end. So guess what you get instead? That's right, a message from Zoe.
0: All right, listeners, one thing that I've been super excited to share and I guess announce a little bit is that the studio where I work, Obsidian, is launching a new game called Pentiment that comes out on November 15th. And it is a medieval adventure game that you can play, which I'm super excited about. We did a lot of research for this game. You'll see a bunch of the motifs that we just talk about on the show because it's a medieval story. And the premise of the story is that you play as Andreas Mahler, a journeying artist who is staying at a monastery illuminating medieval manuscripts, when a nobleman comes to town and is murdered. And one of your friends, one of the older monks is accused of the murder and it's your job to go around town and figure out who done it and it's been such a joy to put together and make and i've been doing this and sitting on it for so long and thinking of you guys every day that i write this and i've been so excited to announce it so please if you feel so inclined check out pentiment it is on steam it's on xbox game pass it's on xbox Yeah. So feel free to check it out. It's pretty cool. I've had fun making it. I hope you guys enjoy playing it. And yeah, it would be super cool if you tell me what you think.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for listening to A Message from Zoe. We will see you next time.